Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Hi, Jason. It's great to have you on the podcast and appreciate you taking the time. So, of course, First Solar has had a really inspiring journey to get to where it is today and look forward to diving into it. You joined First Solar back in 2008 during a time when the solar sector was still pretty early in its development. Could you walk us through how the opportunity to work at First Solar presented itself and what your thought process was as it pertains to how First Solar fit into what you envisioned for your own career? Sure. First, let me just start off by saying I'm really glad to be on this podcast, and it's just a great opportunity, and I've enjoyed listening to some examples of the work you've done. It's it's terrific. My journey to First Solar was not part of any particular plan. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to get into a good law school, which is why uh, you and I share a, a school, a good university. And the best advice I got in law school was to go to work for the best law firm you could. And I think the opportunity to get a job at Gravath Swain & Moore, which is my first and only law firm, was certainly that. And Gravath is, was and still is considered one of the top global law firms in the world. And I had the opportunity to join. So when I got the offer, there was no question. But from there, that's where the sort of roadmap, at least as I designed it, ended and was open to whatever opportunity came in front of me. But first, you have to learn the job. And I think what a lot of people who go to law school look back on and realize, and I think this is probably true of a lot of graduate schools, is you get a great education and a great way to train your mind, but you certainly don't get a training to actually do the day-to-day aspects of your job and what the job will entail for the rest of your career. And that was the opportunity I quickly realized Cravath was offering me, learning how to be a lawyer. This is at a time of just a massive amount of transactions. My, my training, my, as I refer to my time at Cravath, my lawyer training, and then my career there was between 2004 to 2008 in earnest. And those, that 2008 date is relevant because that's right around when the financial crisis had hit. Before then, the transaction volume was incredibly large. So I was exposed to all kinds of transactions. M&A, debt financing, acquisition financing, a lot of private equity acquisitions actually at the time. And Cravath happened to have, a, and still does have a large practice in representing underwriters who uh, would carry a company to an IPO. The IPO market was very hot. The group I worked in did a number of IPOs, one of which was this company based in Tempe, Arizona called First Solar. And at the time, it meant nothing to me. It was on a long list of other companies that were IPOing at the time, but it was just the latest one that came through the door. And it did not land on my desk. It landed on the desk of a very good friend of mine named Rich Hossfeld. And Rich worked with a partner named John Gaffney on that deal representing the underwriters. After the IPO, I guess John and Rich did an incredible job because at the time, the chairman 
asked them to join the company. John in the role of general counsel and also in a, um, a much broader capacity than just that. He would, his scope was to run business development, government affairs. And I think he even had a piece of overseeing of finance at the part, at least transactional aspects of financing. So project finance, but he didn't have anybody to do it back then for solar was primarily a module seller into Europe and in particular Germany. So Germany had this feed in tariff which was effectively a guaranteed rate of contract uh, offtake for solar projects. First Solar sold its modules to the developers of those projects on long-term fixed price agreements, and that was 95% of its revenue. There was nothing really in the U.S. at the time, but there was a realization, and this is you know, part of the tremendous foresight of the leadership team there, that eventually that the U.S. would become a significant market. And today, proven correctly, because today it's by far our most significant market. But it was not. It was 5% of the revenues at that point in time. But in order to be successful in the U.S. business, the route there was not just selling modules, but something broader. So someone had to build these projects. Someone had to develop these projects. Someone had to finance these projects. And while today, as an ordinary course event, back then there weren't a lot of parties who were doing it because the technology was so new. I remember hearing about solar projects on rooftops at ShopRite in Paramus, New Jersey but not utility-scale projects of any significant size. And that market was just developing. But that just needed people. So you needed finance people, you needed government affairs people, you needed project developers, and you actually needed a lawyer too. So John reached out to Rich and pulled Rich over to join his team. Rich quickly pivoted to the uh, business development side. So he um, decided to leave the practice of law and focus on business development. And that created some space for other lawyers. And Rich gave me a call and said, you got to come to this company. This is going to be the uh, Google of renewable energy. right?" And I didn't know anything. The product that the company makes is a photovoltaic module. I couldn't pronounce the word photovoltaic. I had no understanding whatsoever what a, a solar module was, how it did, or, or what, what it worked, other than maybe seeing them, like I said, on in uh, supermarkets, a couple of random houses, and you know, on uh, uh, lampposts to uh, provided power to light the street, but knew nothing about it. But uh, I did know Rich, and I trusted his gut very well. I had a tremendous amount of respect for John coming over, and I was ready for something new. And that is, if I have any career advice, same thing as sort of almost personal advice, is surround yourself with good people, and often good things will happen, as long as you continue to do you know, your part, and you can try to contribute to, to those relationships. And I think those relationships are why I'm here and why Upstate and made other relationships along the way, and why I've been here for 15 years, and hope that there's another 15 in front of me. Amazing! Thank you for sharing that. In your early years at the company, First Solar went through some adversity. A case I was reading on the company, for example, mentioned that in FY 2010, First Solar's financials took a relatively significant hit as a result of increased competition from Chinese manufacturers, and also the feed-in tariffs in Germany seem to have declined during that time. So I'd be really curious to hear how First Solar navigated those transforming market dynamics. Also, which was at a time like when you were recently new into the company, be interesting to hear like how you were thinking about it too during that period, having made such a major career shift. If you could just talk about 
some of that transformation in the market and like how the company navigated it and what you were thinking from like your own personal career perspective. That'd be interesting. So, you know, it happened like so many transformations subtly and then sudden in terms of the impact. The story of this industry and a big part of the story of this company is the impact of the government of China making the decision, the strategic decision to enter the solar module manufacturing industry and so many other industries and to do everything in its power to effectively dominate it. And they did it through the usual techniques. Everybody, of course, hears about, you know, IP theft and, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about that to comment on it, but what I have seen firsthand is other techniques such as making a product and then dumping it into markets below costs or using subsidies that violate trade norms, subsidies in subtle ways, right? It's, it's either reimbursements or just giving free land or not requiring payments on the electricity bill or cheap debt or debt that doesn't even need to be repaid. So through dumping and through subsidies, I found a number of markets where it could sell below costs without much corporate concern for returns, while ordinary companies, you know, typical Western companies actually have responsibilities to not just return capital, but provide some kind of capital improvement. And that was the environment in which we suddenly found ourselves competing. And it did impact the bottom line for a while. So that, that's part of it. You also mentioned the fact that the feed-in tariffs eventually became phased out as well. And a big portion, as I mentioned, at the top of the customer base was serving that market and they just no longer could survive. But what I think allowed for solar to continue and to thrive in the face of this sudden change was the decision that it made, that I referenced at the top, to diversify early away from Europe and focus on other markets, in particular the U.S. market. While the German market in particular and the European market in general was, was declining, we had made significant investments in the development side of the business. And the development side, first of all, is at its, at its core, a module manufacturer. It makes the module, but those modules need a home ultimately. And the home for, for a solar module is not a residential rooftop. It's a utility scale system. The utility scale systems are very, very large, right? Back then, talk about the 2010, 2011 timeframe, which you referenced, you know, there were project sizes anywhere from 250, 290. I remember several 500 plus megawatt size projects. And for your listeners who don't know what a megawatt is, basically one megawatt is sufficient to power like a, a big box retailer. Think of like a Walmart or something. You're talking 550 megawatts. It's a significant amount of power from a rel- relatively nascent generation source. But it takes a lot to develop a project of that size. It requires a lot of land. You have to interconnect into the grid. You need to get your permits. A lot of investments need to be made. First Solar was making relatively early through acquiring a number of companies that did this very thing, development companies. And these development companies created a pipeline for First Solar. First Solar was never going to own these projects long-term. But what it was going to do is build out these projects because it had the EPC or engineering procurement and construction capability and the development capability. So we can develop these projects build these projects and it had the infrastructure to sell these projects largely in-house through its project finance arm. So you now have a captive set of projects with a first solar module attached to it. And since we weren't owning the projects, we were selling them to third parties and there was a pretty rich market, robust market of companies that were looking to buy these projects. That ultimately is 
what I would describe is a lot more difficult than framework agreements where you're just selling a module elsewhere. But it does give you a pipeline of opportunities that allowed us to carry through what were some pretty lean years if you're just selling the module on a one-off basis because you were competing with the Chinese. Super interesting. And of course, as you mentioned, the solar industry, particularly in the US, but also globally, has grown significantly since that period. In the US, for example, the capacity in 2010 was about 2.6 gigawatts. And now there is approximately around 140 gigawatts of solar installed today. Would love to get your perspective on what have been the main drivers of this growth and how First Solar evolved with the industry from that time. Is development still a core aspect of First Solar's operations or has there been some evolution on the business model side as well? So uh, numbers I'm sometimes a little light on, but Maybe five or six percent of the country's generation right now is solar, but maybe something like 40 to 50 percent of new generation is solar to give you an idea of just the radical shift. And a big piece, there's a lot of things I think drive that, but I'll always start at the top, which is cost. And I think we have, as a society, largely moved to a place where we are very concerned about the impact of all of our activities, not just our energy generation, but the cars we drive, how we move goods, how we print paper at the office, right? We're all very mindful now in ways of the impact that we're having on the environment and are looking for solutions. And solar offered that solution, but it's got to offer it at a cost-competitive way. Coming out of the sort of onslaught of the Chinese entrance into this market in earnest, there was a decline in price for equipment, which at least contributed to the fact the ability to lower the what's referred to the LCOE, the levelized cost of energy, which is which is in essence the math around how much it's going to cost to not just build the project, but then to maintain it, to fuel it, and how much energy you're going to get out of the project. Now, solar is very lucky, just like wind and all of the renewables, obviously has a very free fuel. And maintenance on a solar plant is, in expected circumstances, in your base case, relatively low. And there aren't a lot of moving parts beyond you know, the tracking system that tracks the, the sun to try to increase power. But the price of the equipment has come down considerably, which has resulted in the overall cost of the system to come down. And at the moment, I believe utility-scale solar and as, along with wind are in ideal regions or the preferred regions cost-competitive with natural gas and more competitive than certainly than coal, for example. Why well, I don't think you're going to ever see another coal plant being built, at least in this country, in your lifetime, my lifetime. So cost significantly, I think, has driven it. So once you get past the cost, you can, I think, focus on the other attributes that people care about. Obviously, there are governments, our own government right now, the federal level is very concerned about the environmental impact of generation within the company. And that's why you have things like the Inflation uh, Reduction Act that support and really are leading to a transformation of the energy economy. And I think all these factors have combined to make solar and other forms of renewable generation, the primary form of generation in this country going forward. So just to give listeners a perspective on First Solar's operations and where it stands a few years ago to today, from what I read online, First Solar had about 6.5 gigawatts of potential supply chain capacity 
in 2020 and recently announced plans to expand from 6.5 to 25 gigawatts in 2025. To achieve that level of scale, of course, there are probably several challenges in terms of building out all of that capacity in such a condensed time frame. But would appreciate hearing your perspective on what you perceive to be maybe the top two challenges to go from 6.5 gigawatts in 2020 to 25 gigawatts in 2025. Yeah, the time frame for 25 gigawatts is, is you're right there, 25. It's expected to be in 26, but all the same, it is, it is a big, big shift and a big lift. I think part of the answer is this answer to the second part of your last question, which I didn't answer, which is whether or not First Solar is continuing to participate in the development industry. And I think the part of the answer to that will help inform this. First Solar eventually did exit the systems business or the development business in 2020-2021 timeframe. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that other developers had gotten in to that market. The margins were very appealing for developers to get in. The mystification of developing a solar generating system had largely been understood the way it was in earlier years. And so you had a lot of folks who got into it. And with competition, as we all know, and that's going to have an impact on pricing. And when there's significant pricing competition, differentiation is the name of the game. And we came to the realization that the assets that we had, development business that we were going to continue to, would be probably better served in the hands of others than in our hands. And the value would be more fully realized in others' hands, which allowed us to invest in what we do best, which is module manufacturing and technology. We are at our core, a manufacturing and technology company. And it's not just the technology piece. There's that manufacturing piece to it. Going from six and a half gigawatts to 25 gigawatts in several years time, it's a challenge in terms of just a, just a multiple of scale. We're, we're talking four times, almost four times the volume, but it's also significant in terms of locations. Right. We've historically manufactured in Ohio here in the US, in Vietnam and Malaysia. But this expansion, the expansion numbers that you include include a new plant in India, which is a new location for us, and a plant in Alabama, which is expected to go online in the middle of this year, and a plant in Louisiana, which is expected to go online next year, as well as expanding the capacity of uh, of our Ohio plant. So there's a lot of different places where you're doing it. So that, I think, number one, is, the, is one of the biggest challenges. You're just in a lot of different places, right? In places that you haven't historically um, done it before. So you've got to learn how to do business where you're going. Alabama is an incremental challenge relative to Ohio because it's just a new location, a new supply chain, a new community that you're in, new workforce that you've, you've got to get to know as one example. It's an incremental sort of difference. Going to a different country like India is of an order of magnitude higher. Because you're just further away from your home base and it's your first plant there and your first plant, in, you know, in, in that region. Full stop. So I think that's a big part of it. But being capable on the manufacturing side, I think helps m- mitigate that risk significantly. Our plants, by and large, are replicas of themselves wherever we go. Now, maybe the outside looks different. Maybe the shrubbery is different. The roads are different. But once you're inside that building, if I blindfolded you, you may not know what state you were in or what country you were in at any, any point in time. Until I told you. So what we refer to as copy smart approach or copy exact approach, where we basically take the learnings from the latest development uh, on the manufacturing side that we've achieved 
in Ohio, which is where so much of the, particularly the manufacturing excellence begins and then is rolled out elsewhere. You take that and then you roll it out to other plants and that helps significantly mitigate the risk. Tools are the same, the processes are the same, the metrics are the same and the like. You take learnings back too. So India just is now fully online and capable of shipping product. So the lessons we learned there are going to quickly be able to be um, referred back to in, in Alabama, right? The benefits, you know, in, India went online in about 19 months, which I think is the fastest time from groundbreaking to startup that we had. Well, we used, used to say something like 24 months would be the amount of time it takes to get up a factory. Now, with what we learned in India, maybe we can replicate it in Alabama and Louisiana and get those plants up faster uh, as well, which would have you know significant benefit to this company in terms of offering more production capacity earlier. You learn your lessons. But look, I would tell people this, regardless of what your business is in, growth is hard and scale is hard. Mistakes that you can make when you're at six gigawatts, while no one wants to make them, will happen. The mistakes that you make at 25 gigawatts will be exponentially larger. So you have to be prepared ahead of getting, you know, it sounds great to have that growth, but you need to be prepared to deal with the the severity of the challenges that it will result. That you have the luxury of avoiding when you're smaller. I think this company does a very good job in that regard of mitigating those risks. And a lot of that ability is because we really, we make one product and it's our historical, it's our DNA, right? Manufacturing and technology, not being in the development business allows that focus, I think, in a way that makes me feel pretty good that we're going to be able to execute on what's going to be some significant growth and just a lot of activity over the course of the next several years. Very interesting. And is it true that the 25 gigawatts of capacity that is expected to be brought online by First Solar has already been contracted out to developers? And part two to that question is, where is most of this demand coming from? Are you finding that the U.S. market is currently the most hot in the solar industry as it pertains to First Solar? Could you provide some perspective on how regional demand is distributed? We are sold out for next year and the year that follows and into 2026, in part because of demand for the product, in part because of the way I think responsible customers, and we have a very, we have some of the largest, most sophisticated customers in the industry and how they contract, they like to forward contract. We like to forward contract because it gives us some level of certainty as to the destination for these products as well as the economics that will surround them. So it's really win-win between with us and our customers and allowing us to sell out. So yes, it is correct. We are forward sold out for the next several years, but you know, you got to continue to pick your opportunities to sell and not get complacent. I mean, we've got a module coming off the line every couple of seconds and those modules need a home. Ultimately they need a home. Having a destination through having contracted offtake for that volume is very helpful, right? It just helps you understand where the module that's getting produced is going to ultimately go. And in our case, several years in advance, the U.S. is our largest market. Uh, I think our core markets are the U.S., India, and and Europe. That's largely where our sales are. And of that, the U.S. is is the most significant of those three markets. Which driving that demand is, I think. A number of things. First of all, just the, the size of these projects and a number of the projects are significant. I think for solar, it does very well because among its tenants is it honors its commitments. And for solar, has enters into these long-term agreements 
And I think we were able to enter these long-term agreements because our customer base, which is largely a repeating customer base. And we've got some new new ones who this year, every year you get some, some new ones, new, very good customers. But historically, you've got customers who have dealt with for solar in the past. And it's honored its commitments around delivery, around holding price. You know, when the market changed, like we experienced last year, particularly around the shipping market and the supply chain constraints, you know, we honored our commitments under our contracts and didn't renegotiate anything uh, to deal with the increase in costs, for example, as it relates to shipping. We just sold at the price we provided. So I think you've got customers who have a pretty large portfolio and they continue to come back to First Solar because it honors its commitments. So I think that, you know, it's important for this industry. I think it's important for your listeners who are in the industry to just understand that, you know, if you, at the end of the day, you're dealing with people and relationships. And if they know they can trust you, if they know you're going to honor your bargain, they'll likely be inclined to keep coming back to you. If you look at things big picture, you want to try to maintain those relationships because you want that type of customer base who values partnerships over just transactions. I think our approach to production of modules is highly differentiated and valued in the U.S. We operate under what we refer to as responsible solar principles. So where we procure our raw materials, how we treat our workers. You know, we're part of the, what's referred to as Responsible Business Alliance, which is the only outfit that does on-site testing, or sorry, the leading outfit to do on-site supply chain testing as opposed to desktop uh, review. On-site audits as opposed to just a desktop desktop review. We're the only solar module manufacturer of scale who participates in that and who had those audits. So when folks know they're buying from First Solar, they know their supply, the supply chain is clean. That's just one of the pillars of a responsible solar. The How we make our module, we have the, by far the lowest carbon footprint, the lowest water usage, the fastest energy payback time of any solar module manufacturer. And, you know, companies who are buying this product have their own sustainability reports and are reporting these metrics as well. They care about, you know, we're part of their supply chain and they care about where their product is coming from. I think that's, that's very important. And we are the largest manufacturer of modules in the Western Hemisphere, the world's leading thin film module manufacturer of scale. And we're based here in the U.S. For solar's Probably its greatest differentiation is its vertically integrated uh, manufacturing process. So within the United States and within India and within Southeast Asia, but within the United States, if you're buying a first solar panel from our Ohio plant or eventually Alabama, Louisiana, you know that from the beginning part of the process, from the semiconductor part to the fully assembled module, or you know, with us, we load in a glass at one end of the plant, and four and a half hours or so later, a a final module comes out all under one roof. So from a traceability perspective, that's unparalleled, right? You know where all pieces from semiconductor to wafer to cell to final module, which is essentially the entire solar module supply chain that I've just described, all happens under one roof. With the Inflation Reduction Act, domestic content is an important pillar of that. And we can get into details of that now or later. I've been doing quite a bit of talking during this question, but the reality is that procuring a module that's made in the U.S., and particularly all aspects of that module that's made in the U.S., is a key differentiator, and it helps support the demand for our module here. Amazing. And yeah, that was actually going to be my last and final question prior to one more personal career reflection question. And thank you so much for your time and all of this information has really been informative. As it pertains to the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, for solar has 
given everything you've described, been able to be a pretty big beneficiary of a lot of the subsidies that were built in. And I'm wondering, from an economic standpoint, how does the IRA impact First Solar's prices in comparison to, for example, Chinese manufacturers? And of course, they produce different panels. So could you just talk about where the IRA fits in from an economic standpoint and how it realigns the playing field? The IRA, in terms of leveling the playing field, I think the IRA is one component of leveling the playing field, but it's one tool that unfortunately the government needs many of in order to layer the playing field. The conditions that I referred to earlier around illegal subsidization, subsidization, illegal dumping that the government of China has used as part of their industrial strategy, both at home and through its manufacturing facilities in Southeast Asia, is creates this completely unlevel uh, playing field. The, the IRA largely is for purchasing domestic products, which would veer one away from purchasing an internationally produced product, which again predominantly, predominantly would be from China or Southeast Asia, but also through strong trade enforcements like the uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duties that are applied through the Commerce Department and the anti-circumvention uh, duties that are applied, are recently being applied. There's a moratorium around it for the next couple of years, but in any case, they're applied for not just the the uh, subsidization of the product that comes from the mainland, but also from subsidiaries that are located in, in Southeast Asia. So it's all part of one big toolbox, I think, that the IRA forms a piece of. Uh, the domestic content provisions under the IRA work so that if a developer of a project is purchasing, would be entitled under, for example, the ITC, which is investment tax credit. So its investment um, would be entitled to normally a 30% tax credit on the qualified aspects of the basis of the project. The domestic content provisions include a 10% increase. So it's the use of certain items like uh, U.S. steel, exclusive U.S. steel, and then a portion of your overall system has to be procured domestically. And there's guidance as to what it means, sorry, treasury guidance as to what it means to be a domestic product. We believe we're best positioned from a solar module manufacturer to provide that from a a, uh, module perspective for that piece of it. Uh, How does it impact pricing? Look, I think it helps create value because of the ITC. And I think our modules are priced in part to reflect the value that we're able to provide our developers. And I think there's an understanding of what that incremental value is between us and our, our customers. So I think in, in IRA has been very helpful in that regard. The IRA has also provided tax benefits and incentives to continue domestic production. But I wouldn't want your listeners to think that First Solar is an IRA story. The reality is this company has invested $4 billion since the IRA was announced without seeing a penny of any of those, those benefits, uh, in large part because we believe in the fundamentals of our business. So you've got to evaluate your business, not with any particular government program in place. You've got to evaluate it in terms of what you think the fundamental ability is of your company to sustain this level of growth with or without um, those benefits. We feel pretty good about where we are. But certainly the IRA does provide us and this country, and that's really what's so important to focus on. It provides this country with the opportunity uh, to seize its energy future and produce it domestically. And through the benefits, uh, the tax benefits that are available for us and for many others in the supply chain, as well as our development customers, I think we take a big step there with this monumental piece of uh, legislation. Amazing. Thank you for a phenomenal interview. And my final question 
So reflecting on your career journey, which has been incredible by almost any standard, if you could give one piece of career advice to your 25-year-old self and then your 35-year-old self, what would that be? Great question. And let me um, let me start to answer. I've really enjoyed this and really delighted to participate in this. And hopefully this is of some use to, to your listeners. If I was to go to my 25-year-old self, what I would tell the 25-year-old version of me is don't treat your career like a hobby. Treat your career as an investment. Everywhere around you, there is a learning opportunity, right? All you have to do is listen. And all you have to do is read that article or are assigned a project and you're assigned a discrete piece of it. Try to find out 40% of it. Try to find out what's going on on the other 60% of it, right? Because there's learning opportunities all around you. And what I mean by don't treat your career like a hobby, it may be easier. You may get to go home a couple hours earlier. If you don't pursue that other 60%, if you don't ask those questions, if you don't participate in the meetings that you don't necessarily have to be in, but boy, you can find a great opportunity to accelerate your learning um, at that 25, 26, 27-year-old self. Because the truth is, you don't have a whole lot coming out of school to offer your employer, other than a little, what may be your, your intelligence, but really your commitment and your time and your willingness to invest in learning. So I really would say, don't treat your career like a hobby. Take it seriously and use all those learning opportunities that you have around you, because they're free and they're there and all you have to do is put in the effort to extract extract the value from that at 35 years old well what i say to myself i think i would say is uh investing in relationships the earlier part of your career you should be in learning mode i think in, in contribution mode but you know unless you start up your own thing and i'm a i'm i worked for a company i've worked for two companies in my life uh Kravath, and now for solar. And the path at these companies to career investment, uh, advancement is doing the work and showing up, being a good member of, of the team and a good contributor to the overall co- company. But there's no sort of fast, fast track, right? Through doing well. Or don't look for those shortcuts and those fast tracks. Just continue to try to contribute to your company as best, as best you can and trust that if you're at a place that values that you'll advance. If you're at a place that doesn't value that, then you're probably at the wrong, wrong place. But at some point, I think the investment in relationships becomes critical because, you know, I had somebody once tell me, and I was, I wasn't 35, but I wasn't that far from it, who was in a decision making position at the company and impacting the next steps of my career. And he said to me, Jason, I know you can do the work. Okay. So that part, I think, is the 25 to 35 year old investing in the work. He said, Jason, I know you can do the work. The question is, can we work with you? Who are you? Right. And I think picking my head up out of the paper and starting to get, give people a sense of who I am went a long way. So that's what I mean by investing in relationships. I think if you build yourself up and show professional competence, that's great, but also let the folks know who you are. Because at some point, it's going to be expected that you know how to do the job. The next question is, can they work with you if you're in, in, in a leadership position? So spend some time, let people get to know who you are. I think the opportunities are, uh, the opportunities are endless. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.